The following is a workshop from the 2018 SDMI Leadership Conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you for listening. Greetings. My name is Roger Hahn. This session is Why We Must Teach the Bible or Teach from the Bible if you need more prepositions. Um, and I think we might as well get underway. <clears throat> get myself oriented and figured out here. I want to start with a quotation from John Wesley, a uh, fairly well-known one. I'm a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book, the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libre, Latin for a man of one book. Now, one of the more famous sayings of Wesley about scripture, put the smiley face up because he says, let me be a man of one book. He plagiarized more books than most of us have read. <laughs> Uh, he published, among other things, and it's not even kept in publication anymore, a 50-volume Christian library, mostly plagiarized stuff. Uh, if you don't know, uh, copyright laws weren't in effect back then, so it wasn't plagiarizing. It was just, well, he called it plundering the Egyptians. Uh, what, a, what a statement of the importance of Scripture uh, as part of our heritage. But moving on. Uh, I've given the, the purpose statement from the Gospel of John. This happens to be my own translation of these. Uh, I'll read it and then I'll paraphrase it. Uh, now Jesus also performed many other similar signs in the presence of his disciples, signs which have not been written in this book. But these signs have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in order that, because you believe, you may have life in his name. I think that purpose statement for the Gospel of John could serve in many ways as a purpose statement for the whole of Scripture. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are not in the Bible. Uh, and one of the errors we sometimes make is trying to find answers to questions that it's not answering. But the things that are there are written in order that we may believe, that we may come to faith, that we may come to trusting relationship with God through Christ. And that once that happens... There is life for us, uh, purpose of the scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, one of his purpose statements, uh, my little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I, I, I want to I move from that sense of just the Bible to its purpose of forming Christ in us, that its purpose is not information, its purpose is transformation and the formation of Christ in us. Uh, once that happens, thus I make it my ambition, the apostle says, to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. A statement from Romans 15. Uh, once Christ is formed in a person, that formation turns the person outward rather than inward. A and 
in terms of uh, proclaiming the gospel, uh, both to folks who've heard and folks who've never heard. Uh, what we're really talking about is the mission of the church, our mission at this point. And, and the mission of the church is to participate in the mission of God, not to. And there's all kinds of things we could fill in blanks there. Not to pay the electric bill, to recall a few prayers of my childhood in our little church. Um, not to find some needed meeting, as we said in church growth times. Uh, if we are participating in the mission of God, we'll be meeting people's needs. Um, but it will come from that purpose rather than our trying to figure something out on our own. And you can fill in lots of other things. The mission of God is the restoration of all creation, both human and non-human, to God's original creation purposes, the purposes for which he created creation and created us. And just to move along, the shape of that restored creation is, first of all, relational. We were created to be in relationship with God and with each other, and with all creation. I've got Wesley on my mind, uh, having just finished teaching a week in the uh, Spanish District School of Ministry, the theology, Life and Theology of John Wesley. But a part of our Wesleyan heritage is this intense concern, care for creation itself. Uh, not just souls, uh, not just disembodied spirits, uh, not just ourselves, not just the church, but all of creation. And um, we're created to be in relationship with that, and that's a marvelous, wonderful thing. Uh, love is a part of the character of restored creation, because love is the character of God. And it's the character of the relationships that God has created and the relationships which God seeks to restore. And that love is holy. And if, uh, if you can see the screen, You'll see an old pun uh, that I remember from my childhood. Holy with a W and holy without a W, just H. Holiness as wholeness. So that holy love is wholly, completely loving, holy or completely seeking the best for others, holy or completely devoted to obedience to God and the service to each other and to creation. If that's our mission, God has not left us without resource. In fact, God has given us a model of what that kind of participation in the restoration of all creation would look like. And that model has a name. Jesus Christ. In fact, it, it is God himself becoming the very model of what participation in his own mission and the restoration of all creation would look like. And we call that theologically the incarnation. The word became flesh and lived where we live, lived in our world, and we beheld the glory of God there. And so a part of what's at work in the mission of God in restoration is God already at work, uh, again in Wesleyan terms, through prevenient grace, uh, active and alive and at work in the world in which we live, creating space, creating opportunities by which those holy, loving relationships can begin to develop and begin to grow and to find their fulfillment. Uh, most authentically, to participate in the uh, restoration of all creation, it was necessary for Christ to become incarnate in a particular place, at a particular time, 
because restored creation is not about broad generalities, it's about particulars. Particular, particular people, particular places, particular things. Uh, years ago, uh, in classes, uh, my teachers called this the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity means, among other things, that Jesus lived on earth only 33 years. And fascinatingly enough, out of those 33 years, thought only three of those was sufficient to devote to his active ministry. Uh, he lived in uh, Galilee and Judea. I've been enough places in the world to think there probably are some places farther from the center of things, uh, closer to nowhere than Galilee and Judea. But they're not much closer to nowhere than Galilee and Judea was. And so Jesus invested his life in that out-of-the-way, strange place, uh, that place of conflict and hatred and bitterness. Uh, he invested there for three years, and then he was gone. to overcome the scandal of particularity, to extend the work that Christ began, uh, to, to, to say, man, three years in that little place isn't enough. God called into being the church. And I think it's one of our favorite titles for the church theologically, when we call the church the body of Christ. We are, in a sense, talking about an extension of the incarnation from the incarnation of God into Christ to the incarnation of Christ through the church into the world. Uh, and so our task is simply the extension. We're trying to expand beyond the particularities of three years uh, in Galilee and Judea. So the mission of the church is to participate in the mission of God to restore all creation to creation purposes church with any other mission is essentially stealing the name church from God. God designed the church to do this, uh, to be the body, the extension of Christ. And if we go off on other missions, then we probably should turn in the little name church. Uh, take that off of our sign. Well, that's off of some of our signs already, isn't it? Thus, the church is about teaching and enabling people to trust in God, to believe in God, to put their total confidence in God uh, as, with Christ as the model of who we're to become. And the church's purpose is about teaching people to experience the beginning of restored life that God intends. We're back to the John passage there. Continuing the theme on resources. Thus, the church is about forming Christ in those who would follow Christ, the Galatians passage we cited uh, a few slides back. When Christ is formed in us, we will become in ever-increasing measure persons of relational holy love with God, with each other, and with all creation. The church, compelled by such love, then, has the ambition to proclaim the good news both where Christ is already known, we would say, in church, and among those who have not yet heard the invitation to have their lives restored, uh, the call to evangelism, which is the Romans 15 passage. That is to say, relational holy love is not just for individuals, but God desires a people 
congregation, a church characterized by that kind of relational holy love. Well, another resource. To keep the church on track, God has given us a book. Uh, Wesley's quote that we started with, uh, to find the way to heaven. Uh, but heaven understood in a, I'm going to call it a more comprehensive way. Heaven as the object, the end, the definition of a totally restored creation characterized by holy relational love. Now, the history of the uh, people of God, whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament or throughout church history, uh, the history clearly demonstrates that the more the church is formed by Scripture, the more authentically it participates in that restorative nature of the mission of God. Conversely, the less the church is formed by Scripture, the more likely it is to be co-opted by the world, to turn in upon itself in self-preserving, uh, self-serving preservation and promotion, and to forget about relational holy love. That is to say, Scripture pushes against our tendencies. We even have a tendency to turn heaven into a self-centered, self-absorbed future. Uh, this came, well, didn't come from, but beloved, beloved member of the church I'm a part of, uh, her funeral. She died of pancreatic cancer, too young. Funeral's on Saturday. So, so heaven's on my mind. <laughs> but if the mission of God is the restoration of all creation to experience relational holy love, then heaven must be consistent with that mission of God. It, it can't be something different than the whole central focus and mission and purpose of God which means heaven cannot be about escape from creation. Uh, it's been a part of a certain uh, end times tradition of preaching that uh, this world is this terrible, terrible place that's on its way to hell in a handbasket, and we've just got to hang on by our fingernails till Jesus comes and rescues us from this terrible place, uh, which certainly runs counter to the pronouncement of God in Genesis 1. This is good. This is good. This is good. <clears throat> and it's counter to the words of Revelation that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Heaven cannot be primarily, and, and please note the word primarily, I'm not denying the rest of it, but it cannot be primarily about reunion with my loved ones, which is the main thing I've been hearing in funerals in the last 45 years. It must be the celebration of Christ. It must be the celebration of the saints from every tribe and language, people and nation, to use a phrase from Revelation. It must be a celebration of the restored, renewed earth. <clears throat> Heaven cannot be conceptualized in materialistic terms. Uh, whether gold, which you find already in Scripture, or golf, which is a fairly... Um, well, uh, maybe it's only preachers that talk about playing golf in heaven, I don't know. Or leisure. Or library. I had a teacher in seminary who said heaven is a library with all the books in the world and none of them are checked out, which being interpreted was, I could get any book I wanted as soon as I wanted it without having to wait on it. All these are different ways in which we're reducing heaven from this 
celebration of restored creation to something that's pleasurable and manipulative. It's self-centered and self-absorbing for us. But that's just a little uh, tangent I've been on, so let's move on. Back to the resources for our participation in the mission of God. The central role of scripture must be both the formation of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and the formation of faithful congregations of people who participate in that mission of God through relational holy love. This is to say, scripture must never devolve, <laughs> evolve downwards into just, just knowledge about God. Its function is to enable us to know God better, to love God more deeply, to follow in the footsteps of Christ more closely. That is to say, Scripture has a formative function, a formative purpose. Uh, some of the pieces of this, uh, some of the slides of this presentation I gave at the ENC Palcon with something about the title of uh, Biblical Literacy, how to improve biblical literacy in your church. And I have gained interest in improving the capacity to win those old Bible trivia games that you know who Mephibosheth's father was. Um, but I'm prof profoundly and interestingly after a lifetime of teaching scripture, my interest and focus is how does this book shape and form us? How does it make us more like Christ? How does it bring us, lead us into this relational holy love? So we've got to teach the Bible from the Bible. And that's why in the title I had from in brackets. Um, a, a downside of from means coming away from. And teaching scripture, teaching the Bible, uh, making it formative in our lives is what we must do. We, we've got to teach that grand message of scripture, the mission of God, the overarching story of God, and our participation in that mission. Well, just a little bit of uh, stuff. <clears throat> Research on the use and engagement with the Bible has been done over the past six years in particular uh, by the Barter Group for the American Bible Society, and there's a, uh, a link possibility there. Um, some interesting stuff from that, and I'm just going to take bits and pieces out of that. Uh, they define a Bible user as someone who has read, listened to, or prayed with the Bible on their own, that is to say, not in a church service, at least three or four times a year. Is that a very high bar? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you think with that kind of definition, uh, there'd be all A's on this test. Uh, so, one of the interesting observations they make, and uh, my undergraduate major was math, so I know you can lie with statistics. Uh, one of their questions was to ask uh, people, of these following options, which of these do you consider to be sacred scripture or the Holy Bible? And the options were then the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, the Book of Mormon, and none of the above. And with this same survey they've been doing since 2011, between 2011 and 2016, the number, or the percent rather, of people uh, answering none of the above doubled. Now, it was the smallest group, so the doubling of the smallest group isn't necessarily a huge, huge number, 
But it went, I think, from about uh, 11% to about 21%, uh, which I think is in indicating a trend of fewer and fewer people having a clue about this book. Uh, the fascinating point is, this is in a nation where uh, two out of three or three out of four folks claim to have a personal relationship with Christ or to have been born again at some point in their lives. Uh, some more material. They define Bible-centered people, which they say is only 90% of the population. People who uh, use the Bible every day, 80% of them do. Uh, Bible-engaged people are people, 17% uh, of the population, who um, some of them read it every day, but most of them just read it once a week. Bible-friendly people, uh, under half of, almost half of these attend church weekly. So in a certain sense, their category, Bible-friendly, is 50% of the congregation where you worship. Okay? Uh, in some of the charts and things that are coming up, sort of remember that. The Bible-friendly people is half the folks in our church. Okay? Uh, Bible-neutral people, uh, only 5%. They interact with the Bible once in a while. And Bible-disengaged, which they call 54% of the United States population. Bible-disengaged. Don't interact with the Bible at all. So, when asked, to what degree are these items a, daily, a necessity in your daily life? Of all American adults, 37% said coffee was a daily necessity, had to, had to have it. 28% said something sweet. 19% said social media, and 16% said the Bible mattered. Uh, when you go to Bible-friendly, that's half the folks in our churches, 29% uh, said coffee was more necessary to them than scripture was. Uh, well, more of them said something sweet was more necessary than scripture. Some more of them said better more. Social media is more important to them. And when you, never mind, when you consider the average age of our church people, that more people are still engaged in social media than in scripture. Uh, church, you have a problem. Uh, Here's another statistic on Bible use. Uh, people, and, and this comes, the data is on your uh, left. So down at the bottom, 80% of the folks who are centered use the Bible daily. But again, it's amongst the friendly. That's half the people in our churches. 8% of the folks uh, use the Bible uh, once a month. Oh, no, use it daily. 21% uh, Use it once a month and once a week. Yeah. Fascinating statistics. Okay. Uh, this is more problematic in my mind. The Bible's impact on our behavior. This is simply amongst those who use the Bible once a month. The question is, has, my, has the Bible's impact on me made me more willing to engage in my faith? Uh, it's pretty evenly divided between folks who strong, very strongly agree and strongly agree who agree. Uh, makes me show more loving behavior toward others, similar kind of distribution. Makes me more generous with my time, energy, or financial resources. Not so much so. Its impact isn't touching my uh, use of my time, energy, or financial resources. Uh, 
If you're a pastor, you're not shocked by that one either. Oops. One more chart. The Bible has a lot of influence on what I buy. You'll note not high degree of influence on what I buy. The Bible has a lot of influence on the movies and television I choose to watch. Again, lack of particular influence. Which, um, are, are any of you Nazarenes? <laughs> Have any of you been Nazarenes 30, 30 years or so? Do you remember when the Church of the Nazarene had a stand to get its movies? And, and what's our stand now? Discernment or discretion. But Scripture is not influencing that, according to this research. We're not using anything Scripture has to say to, to influence our discretion, our discernment. Uh, we, uh, I think we fumbled the ball somewhere. Uh, a few prepositions, uh, presuppositions. Uh, first of all, I think our people and we ourselves are being suddenly formed, suddenly formed by the world around us. Uh, popular media, media is doing it. Uh, current events are doing it in ways that we are hardly aware of. Those of you that have been around, been in the church 30 years, we're different people than we were 30 years ago. And, and most of us don't really know how we got from there to here. It's just sort of been happening. Uh, as the world, to use uh, uh, the nice thing about being old is you lose your mind and you worry about it. When you're young, you can't remember and you don't worry. Uh, <laughs> A popular paraphrase is all that the world squeezes you in its mold, not before Peterson, before the Living Bible. <laughs> uh, I'll remember it tonight while I'm trying to sleep. Uh, it squeezed us into our mold. And, and so there are consequences that are increasingly harmful in our families and in our church and in the future of our families and our church. And we really seem to be unaware of it. Now, there have been circumstances like this not with the same kind of media methodology assaulting us. But this has happened in the past in church history. And one of the responses has been, by seriously being Christians in the past, to withdraw into isolated communities to preserve Christian identity and worldview. Anybody from Ohio here? Are there any Amish in Ohio? There was a strategic decision made by a group of people saying the world is squeezing us into its mold and it's influencing our church and our future in ways that we're not happy about, and their response was a withdrawal response. Such an option is not available to us because God has called us to be in the world, to be salt and light, to be contagious in our holiness in ways that overcomes the power of darkness and sin, which means we need some kind of ballast that keeps us formed, that keeps us focused, that helps us discern and overcome that squeezing power of the culture. So, presupposition. God has created us to have our identity in relationship with him and his people. Our relationship cannot be in the Ohio State Buckeyes or the Philadelphia Eagles or the Kansas City Chiefs or the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees or etc., etc. The kinds of things that we increasingly are finding ourselves sort of just influenced into making identities. 
all the t-shirts of sports teams that exist in my house uh, that my kids wear, and I have a Down syndrome son. But this Friday, he knows he's to wear a red Chiefs t-shirt because Friday is Chiefs Red Friday. Uh, his identity is being shaped by the culture. And we're working hard to try to push back and give him some sense of Christ's identity. God has created us for that. God has inspired and preserved the Bible for the purpose of forming us into the image of Christ. And thus to shape our identity and our worldview into conformity with his purposes for creation. That is, God has provided the Bible to help us move along and help him move along on this mission of the restoration of all creation. Now, most of our members and churches have little to no awareness of God's purpose for themselves and little to no awareness of God's purpose for the Bible to bring them in conformity with those purposes. Mm, John Comstock's walked out. Uh, no wonder. <laughs> uh, John and I talked for a little while while we were waiting on the technology to get set up. And this statement, we have no strategy by which we are intentionally working towards these purposes of God in our church or for persons in our church. We're just sort of dead in the water while this goes around us. And God has given us some resources that we need to learn how to make use of. What we need is not a vast increase in knowledge of Bible facts. Although the research is clear that we have deplorable ignorance about Bible facts among churchgoers just as among uh, the general population. What we really need, instead of Bible facts people, is people who are being formed by the Scripture, people who have saturated themselves in the whole of Scripture so that its words are on their hearts, on their minds, and on their lips. And if that's happening, they'll probably know the difference between Adam and Abraham, between Moses and Noah. At least between Jesus and Joshua, I hope. Um, one of the fascinating things about Wesley, and it's true of the Wesley hymns, a scripture has so been absorbed into those two men that it just sort of flowed out in all of their phraseology. And their, it's, it, if you take a, a Wesley sermon and trace out all the scripture quotations or allusions in it, um, the Spanish version of the sermons, Half the page is footnotes of scripture allusions. If you do a scripture allusion index in a Charles Wesley hymn, there'll be 20 or 30 or more allusions in a, well, the four verses that we published instead of the 17 verses that he wrote. Um, knowledge of Bible facts actually grow with scripture saturation, but the formation of people in the fully developed and developing followers of Christ doesn't necessarily follow an increase in knowing Bible facts. So that my point is biblical literacy is not knowledge of Bible trivia. Biblical literacy ultimately must be knowing intimately the whole counsel of the Word of God. Now, because the popular media and culture has such pervasive and powerful influence, overcoming it's going to be difficult, can be a challenge for us. We must develop intentional strategies and clear goals if we hope to succeed. Post-Christendom. Uh, Jason from California. Post-Christendom has arrived there. It may not have arrived in Ohio yet, but there's 
places in fact in Columbus, Ohio too, it's got plenty of post-Christendom. Hmm? Post-Christendom actually offers us new opportunities for Christian witness that have not been available since the beginning of the fourth century. Uh, we have some Calvinist folks who lament post-Christendom and uh, post-modernity and say, no, you got to have absolute truth as your sort of conceptual base before you can move toward becoming a Christian. Uh, Westerns are much more comfortable saying, uh, God is willing to work wherever we are. And uh, post-Christendom and post-Mary is offering us opportunities for witness that uh, the early church had and that we pretty well forgotten by being institutionalized and successful institutions for a lot of years. Now, what I'm about to talk about are not sufficient ideas, they're not comprehensive ideas. They're my first steps of thinking about this and, and uh, a growing passion for me, let's put it that way. Uh, we must apply our best thinking and strongest efforts, or I think Christianity will probably disappear out of North America in any significant way. Uh, not to worry, it will disappear. God's going to turn to the global south. He already has. Uh, for energy, passion, direction, and the vitalization of the Christian faith. So what do we do for individuals? Uh, we must give serious attention to ourselves and to our own spiritual formation in these days. Uh, let me just, how many of you are pastors? Okay, how many are lay people? Okay, I got something for both of you, I guess. Uh, if you can figure it out, good. Churches rise no higher than their leaders. And uh, I'm not assuming that the pastor is always the leader of a church. Uh, sometimes a lay person is the spiritual leader. And sometimes they're the other leader too, <laughs> the political leader. Uh, so some church members may pass, surpass their pastors in holiness. Uh, we need to give critical attention to the messages bombarding us in advertisements television programming, in the movies we watch, in the books we read, in the conversations and comments that are taking place amongst our contemporaries, especially on social media, things that suggest that we can have anything and everything we might want, and that we can do anything and everything we might be tempted to do, and that there will be no consequences in a harmful sense. <clears throat> that, that is one of the messages, I think, that is coming through loud and clear in today's culture. Uh, which is a way of saying the concept of sin has essentially disappeared from our culture. It's a joke nowadays. Uh, sin is a, a cartoon. And, and we are being influenced by that culture. So, where do we go as individuals? Uh, first of all, we need to work on disciplining ourselves not to receive, accept those kinds of messages from the culture and popular media. Which means we also must create a counter-cultural message and the only way you get there is through the Bible, through prayer, through spiritual discipline, through community formation. Okay. We must develop voracious appetites for the Bible. Spiritual classics, theology, church history, great music of the church. Uh, that, uh, we've got lots of our folks who can't wait till the next what, John Grisham novel comes out or some other famous author. Or uh, on the other end, uh, Louis Lamorne's not right anymore. Uh, the, the whole spectrum of literature that we crave. Uh, can, can we create communities where there's that kind of appetite for the Word of God? I hope so. 
we must examine these resources, uh, particularly spiritual classics, theology, church history, music, for integrity to the purposes of God and for resistance to the influences of the world. We must become people of the word. Uh, the phrase I'm using, we must become biblical persons before we can become biblical preachers or biblical teachers in the life of our church. So, how do I become a biblical person? Very easy. Yeah, very easy. Very quickly. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Is there a difference? Good. Study whole books of the Bible. We'll swing around to this again. The Bible was not written in verses. It wasn't written in chapters except for Jude, Philemon, and Obadiah. And first, uh, second and third John. Uh, it was written in whole books. And if you don't read a whole book, you don't get the message in the same way. And a variety of programs, including, uh, I don't know if you've been exposed to given this uh, new image. Tyndale gave out some Bibles here that's following the community Bible experience that the NIV is delivering with the NIV. Uh, memorize the Bible. Uh, this, this is something we lost with the disappearance of King James, its uh, prevalence. Um, Learn the context of the Bible. Uh, learn the literary devices of the Bible. Joining God's mission revealed in the Bible. Embody, that is, live out the message of the Bible. Uh, spend time doing this, and you'll be making progress toward uh, becoming a biblical kind of person. I, I just w always have to insert this slide. John Weston's comments on reading the Bible. He says, set apart a little time every morning and evening. Read a chapter out of the Old and out of the New Testament. He goes on in the fine print to say, if you can't read that uh, morning, you can do one and read one Testament one day and one the other day, something. Uh, he was always willing to get what he could get instead of just holding up rules to be perfectly applied or followed. Uh, read with a single eye to know the whole will of God. Uh, not to know things, not to debate theology, to know the will of God. Uh, have, a, uh, have an eye, constant eye to the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith uh, is a term that came out of uh, Irenaeus, I think, in the second century. The sense of the whole sort of overview of the Christian faith. We would call it uh, the Apostles' Creed uh, or uh, the Articles of Faith of the Church. That is to say, the, the way the churches through the ages have synthesized uh, God, salvation, Christ, uh, th those doctrines. And, and so you read scriptures. How does this fit with all of that? Uh, those that the analogy of faith provides kind of the fences that keep you from going off into goofy stuff in your reading of scripture. Uh, he says, use serious and constant prayer. Frequently pause and examine both our hearts and lives. Hearts being motivation, lives being performance. This is my favorite one. Praise God for the ways you have been successful in following his word. Many of us either naturally have a built-in guilt that we don't do as well as this as we ought to, or it's been an enhanced guilt by uh, pastors and other people, influences in our lives. And, and so we focus on our failures in this area, and what does Wesley say? Give thanks that you're successful once in a while. Praise God for the times you actually are connecting and it's working. And then he says, resolve to walk immediately in the light you receive. You commit to a long haul of becoming a biblical person. Because this is not a fad, it's not a program, it's not an instantaneous word of grace. It's a life of discipline. It's commitment for a lifetime. 
It's a lifetime of discipline. It's a lifetime of discovery. It's a lifetime of some discouragement. Not over total discouragement, but it'll come. And it's a lifetime of new development. It may be a lonely project at first, but you will find people who want to join you. That's part of the Wesley's uh, social wholeness. And you gather around with those kind of folks. As the Wesleyan embrace their help, let them hold you accountable for your long obedience in the same direction. Only then are you ready to lead a church or a class or a group in this journey with them. So how do we work starting to move from just individuals toward the church? Uh, we, we need consistent biblical preaching and teaching to spiritually form faithful congregations. Um, Part of the genius of Wesley is that he recognized that preaching alone is not enough. Uh, and I want to say, I think preaching is profoundly important in this process. When a sum total of two verses of scripture is the total amount of scripture read in a church service, what does that say about our prioritization of it? How important is it to us? And we have a tradition of bashing uh, liturgical churches who will read uh, four passages every service. Uh, there's some things we could learn from them. Uh, uh, both Wesley and Whitfield had thousands upon thousands of people responding to their preaching, but the impact of their ministries was vastly different. At the end of his life, Whitfield said, all I have left is a rope of sand. And Wesley organized into groups that held each other accountable, and, and obviously uh, we're part of the ongoing results of that. So he organized those classes and bands and societies, and they provided a spiritual accountability to each other and to the reading of Scripture. Uh, so working together, forming a congregation through biblical preaching is obviously primarily the responsibility of the preacher, but it's not exclusively so. Lay people who want a more biblical preacher and or a better preacher can help their preacher improve, especially if there's a right relationship and a mutual willingness to ask for, provide help. Some congregations have retired and some are still active English teachers who could polish helpful, who could provide helpful literary analysis of biblical texts and could polish grammar if they got the sermon before Sunday morning. Uh, some congregations could form uh, research teams. Uh, some would be willing to pay for some good commentaries or for the preacher to go take a class at a seminary uh, or actually finish a degree. We can have better biblical preaching if we think about ways we can get there and ask each other for help. The impulse for more small group engagement with scripture can come from a pastor or from lay people. Uh, People deeply desirous of being personally formed by Scripture and being part of a congregation formed by Scripture. I think there's a hunger for being formed scripturally. In fact, across this country, thousands upon thousands of Nazarenes are seeking to be formed by Scripture outside their Nazarene congregations. Some have left altogether. And others are just drinking deeply from Bible teaching provided by Reformed teachers and congregations through Bible studies and the online and technology sermons. Uh, and they're hearing more theology from that than they are in our own churches. 
So resources for study of scripture shaped by Western perspective is available. And more is on the way, and we need to tap into that and, and, and begin to move. And, and it's not an impossible task. This is from the Barnard uh, research again. Uh, essentially it says, people are curious about the Bible. Not just the centered people, but even uh, the friendly folks, that is half of your congregation, 40% of them, that is almost half, strongly agree, and 49% uh, agree that they're curious about the Bible. They'd like to know more about it. Uh, so, do they come to church week after week and that curiosity is not satisfied? Uh, there's a desire for biblical use. Uh, once again, 83% uh, of that half of your congregation, the friendlies, uh, wish that they use the Bible more. There's a desire for that. Okay? So, some things we can do just in the life of the church. Preach from the whole Bible, not just Old Testament or New Testament. Uh, it, it's a hard discipline for a preacher to have a balance of Scripture. Okay? It's one of the advantages of preaching from the lectionary. It provides four different texts every Sunday for three years, and it's like we're eating the rotation, which means you could preach from the lectionary for 12 years and never repeat a text. Uh, that's not precisely true because certain holidays they repeat each year. Okay? Uh, so, uh, now, the lectionary is not without weaknesses. Uh, other methods can be used to track and intensely preach from the full range of biblical texts. You just need a way to track it and keep track of it. Uh, look for ways that different texts complement each other. I spent 11 years on staff at Kansas City First Church in a liturgical service using the lectionary. And the way I call it, a bunch of these texts talk to each other. And the sermon, in some sense, is just getting in the middle of the conversation and listening to it as it flows around us. Uh, read more than one passage, at least in a worship service. Uh, don't cut texts short to have more time to preach. When you say, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read this whole passage, what you've just said is, my words are more important than God's words. I, I wish it were other than that, because I've said that a time or two. But that's what it means, and we need to call ourselves to account. Give special attention to congregational response when scripture passages are read aloud. Uh, this is growing in popularity. When a scripture text is read, the reader then says, The word of the Lord, to which the congregation responds, Thanks be to God. Uh, my daughter-in-law came from, uh, well, her spiritual formation is campgrounds. Uh, and the kumbaya is her definition of serious timidity. And uh, started attending with my son a church that did this, thanks be to God, uh, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. She said, I thought that was really weird for a while, but you know what? I really like it now. It says something about the meaning of Scripture. Bingo, Lord. Perhaps carrying the pulpit Bible into the midst of the congregation to read the Scripture lesson. Uh, Ask people to stand. That's a pretty common thing. In honor of the reading of the Word of God. Use scripture passages for the call to worship and benedictions. Uh, sing scriptural songs, and that's not hard to do nowadays in contemporary music. But when you do that, make some way to draw attention between the song and the scripture. So that they know that's where that came from. Use reader's theater from time to time. This is effective on long narrative passages often. Um, be passionate and enthused about the Bible. Act like it matters. 
Actually, I think it does. Um, but you'd never know it by the way many people read the Bible or talk about it in church. Uh, make use in preaching and teaching a wide variety of media resources about the Bible. Uh, a group called the Bible Project, there's a, a link for it, has a series of resources now dealing with the content of the Bible, biblical themes, word studies, how to read the Bible. Uh, a, a number of those have YouTube videos that go with them. Uh, and often there's this little guy drawing uh, the, the stuff, and, and so it's active and interactive. Uh, it's oriented toward content. It's not flashy stuff, uh, but it's increasing the amount of material available on a regular basis. And as always, you should use care and examine the theological presuppositions of the stuff you use. Uh, I, I think there's a strategy uh, to use drama, simple drama, in the presentations of biblical narratives. Uh, lots of creativity and imagination required. Um, but it offers a way to connect the text to a congregation. And uh, many of you are in congregations that if you don't know where to find little dramas that do this, uh, there's somebody in your church that could write one. Simple. Uh, the, the trick is to make sure that the drama is actually doing what the text is about rather than sort of devolving into entertainment and being cute and showing off because all of us like to do that. Uh, consider a sermon with no words of your own. Only words taken from a biblical book. Best sermon I've ever heard out of Revelation. A guy did that. Not the dragons and beasts and horrors, but the, 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 the hymns and the praises and the visions of Revelation. And he rearranged it right after computers came out. Uh, and it was a marvelous message. Uh, <clears throat> Involve children and young people in the reading of Scripture. Cool thing in our last interim at our church. The children's pastor and a first or second grader who was an excellent reader read scripture together. Then the next Sunday, the youth minister and one of the teens did it. <clears throat> Marvelous kind of stuff. Uh, be transparent in the way you preach scripture. Confess if a text is difficult for you. You just don't like it. Uh, that's the way a lot of folks feel. And it's an inductive way to preach, to take from how you didn't like it to come to discover, whoa, this is a good text. <clears throat> take the congregation on a journey of discovery with you. <clears throat> Do extended devotional reflections from biblical passages in board meetings, committee meetings. Uh, create a reading plan for the church and lead them in doing it. There's all kinds of read through the Bible in a year. Use the community Bible experience uh, plan that's being presented in some other workshops here, I think. Uh, talk about what you've read with your people before and after church when you see them. We're pretty good about talking about where we go to eat, about ball games, about the weather. Uh, can we talk about spiritual things in God and the scripture we're reading? Okay. You know what? I've, I've used all my time. I'll stop here. Any of you, I'll click rapidly through because I've got a slide that has, um, whoops, oh, there I go. If you want a copy of the PowerPoint, feel free to uh, email me. And uh, how do you get there? Okay. Email me at rlhon at nts.edu. Okay. Uh, I, I hope there will be a sense of passion growing in you. But this is an important part of our, our life and ministry together. Okay?
Uh, thanks. God bless you.